ask you this morning to go ahead and open your Bibles this morning to the book of Philippians. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 1 again, verses 18 through 21 this morning. Philippians chapter 1, verses 18 uh, through 21. We're going to answer the question, uh, not joy through difficulties, that was last week. Uh, We're going to answer the question this morning, uh, what does it mean to live for Christ? Uh, We will look at the passage, probably one of the most quoted passages in all of the New Testament. uh, For me to live is Christ, for me to die is gain. Uh, what does that mean? How do we practically employ that? How do we, uh, how do we tangibly uh, live out that, articulate that with our lives? For me to live as Christ and for me to die as gain. Philippians chapter 1, verses 18 through 21. Philippians 1, verses 18 through 21. Paul says, what then? Only in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that this shall turn out for my salvation. Through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectations and hope, that I shall not be put to shame in anything, But that with all boldness, Christ shall even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Let's pray. God, as we look at this very challenging passage, as we look at this statement, to live is Christ and to die is gain, Lord, how do we employ this? As we look at Paul's circumstances, Paul's life, it's, it's apples and oranges to our own, Lord, but there are biblical principles that we may extract and apply to our lives. Lord, may you speak to us this morning through your word, and may you challenge us and convict us by your spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, it's important to remember the context that we're Reading, understand that this is the Paul's letter to the church at Philippi, Paul's letter to the Philippian church that was planted by Paul through very difficult circumstances, understanding that Paul is now writing from a Roman prison and he is encouraging the church, encouraging them to have a spirit of joy throughout all of their circumstances. And then Paul is going to give us a recipe for joy. And we've already seen Paul give us a, an overall recipe for joy that, that in order to have joy, we need to focus first and foremost on Jesus. We need to focus secondly on others. And then lastly, focus on yourself, J-O-Y, Jesus, others, yourself. I know it's hokey. I know it's cheesy. Uh, but Jesus, others, yourself, that's the, that's the overall principle for us to have joy in our lives. 
When we're focused upon ourselves, we end up becoming selfish. We end up becoming self-centered, selfishly motivated. But when we focus on Christ and focus on others and focus on ourselves, last, Paul, we'll, we'll see in Philippians chapter 2, Paul said, consider others more important than yourself. He said, make my joy complete by considering others more important than yourself. Having the mind in Christ, which is also in, uh, having, your, having the mind in yourself, which is also in Christ Jesus, Philippians chapter 2, verse 8. And so we see that, that Paul gives us a very practical application you want to have joy. I'm sitting in a Roman prison. I've been shipwrecked. I've been beaten. I've been thrown in jail more times than I care to acknowledge. I've been kicked out of every synagogue that I've been to. How do I have joy? Because I focus on Christ and then others. And lastly, I focus on myself. And so Paul then gives us a very practical, in these few verses in 18 through 21, not only do we see the overarching recipe, but Paul's going to give us a very practical recipe. And my wife and I love to, to try new recipes and try, and most of the time they're epic failures. We always invite my mom over. She's our guinea pig. We say, we're, we're, we're trying a new recipe. You know, we, we, she, she just ordered an air fryer and, you know, we got an Instapot a, a, a a year ago for Christmas. And so anytime we, we, we find a recipe we want to try, we always have to invite a guinea pig over. And, and, and if you, you know, uh, I know a lot of you, uh, ladies and even some of you men like to, uh, you know, get on uh, Pinterest or Facebook and, and there's always these recipes that, and, and they look fantastic, right? But I'm convinced that every one of these authors of these recipes are like from Missouri. Or, or, or Nebraska, or a Kansas, or somewhere in the Midwest, because they always add salt and pepper to taste. And clearly they're not from the South, because no one ever, no, in no recipe have I ever seen them call for Tony's, or, or crab boil, or, or anything that, that has flavor. It's, it's just salt and pepper. And, and so we, we, you know, inevitably, whenever we're cooking these recipes, uh, we, uh, one of the things that we're supposed to have, and we end up substituting, you know, capers or, uh, something else that I don't even know where to find it in the, in the grocery store. My wife will send me to the grocery store and I'm like, I don't know where this is. We'll just, you know, we'll, we'll just add a little extra Tony's to it and it'll be fine. It, it, it never is. <clears throat> well, I say all that to say Paul gives us a recipe. He gives us a, a clear-cut instructions on how to live with joy. And as we look at this, this recipe is going to be that we rejoice in Christ, regardless of our circumstances, that we rely on Christ's providence, we rely on the Spirit of God, we rely upon Christ, and then we will represent Christ. So we will rejoice in Christ, we will rely upon Christ, and we will rejoice in Christ. And so I want to start out rejoicing in Christ. If you look at verse 18, if you look at verse 18, Paul says at the end of verse 18, he says, I rejoice, in this I rejoice. And then he says, yet, and I will rejoice. There are two verbs in this sentence. One is in the present tense and one is in the future tense. One says, I rejoice now. I rejoice in the present circumstances that I am facing. And the present circumstances that Paul is facing is he is sitting in a Roman prison. Why not rejoice, right? You're sitting in a Roman prison. Most of us, 
If they're writing to the church and they're sitting, let's, let's, let's just say, for example, Paul writes this. He's imprisoned on his third missionary journey. Uh, this is when he writes this letter to the Philippian church. And as he's writing this letter, he's giving them an update. Let's just say, for example, your pastor leaves to go on a mission trip and he doesn't come home. And then you get a letter from him saying, oh, by the way, while I was in India or while I was in China or while I was in the Middle East, I was arrested and thrown in prison. What I need you to do, this is what we would expect. What I need you to do is contact our ambassador in uh China, contact our State Department, contact our governing officials, our senator, and and entreat them on my behalf to pull whatever strings they got to pull to get me out of prison so I can come home and see my family and pastor my church. That's what one would expect. But that's not what Paul says. He says, I rejoice. I'm in prison. They chained me to a bunch of Roman guards. I have a captive audience. I rejoice in my current circumstances. And most of us, most of us, myself included, whenever we find ourselves in difficult circumstances, we're always looking for the solution to the problem. How do I get out of these circumstances? How do I fix my problem? Paul says, I rejoice. Understanding that God is providential, God is sovereign, God is ordaining, whether directly or indirectly, all things for his good, I rejoice. But then Paul says, not only do I rejoice in my current circumstances, but I will rejoice in my future circumstances, whatever they may be. It is a present and a future. And I want us to understand that this is not something that Paul just happened upon. But Paul learned this from the legacy of of believers that have come before him. The legacy of God's children that have come before him. Paul learned to be content and Paul learned to have joy in difficult circumstances through the legacy of faith that he was passed down. Remember, Paul grew up as a Pharisee. He knew the law. He knew the Old Testament. He was trained to know, uh, as, as as a Pharisee, as someone who knew the law, they had to remember and they had to be able to recite the Pentateuch, all five books of the Bible, by heart. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. I can't even read Leviticus without falling asleep. And they had to know all five books of the Bible, the first five books of the Bible by heart. Paul knew the Word of God. He was trained the Word of God from a young man. And so Paul knew the legacy of faith. He knew that Job, in verse 1, chapter, chapter 1, verse 21, that Job said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I shall return. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He understood, he understood that Job was a man who was stripped of everything and through the most difficult circumstances, Job was able to praise God. He understood that Habakkuk, or Habakkuk, depending upon your pronunciation, Verse chapter 3, verse 17, this is what Habakkuk said. He said, Though the fig tree should not blossom and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail and the field produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold and there be no cattle in the stalls. So this is what Habakkuk says. He says, it's a bad day. He says, Walmart didn't have any groceries. My freezer's empty. I went to the produce stand. They were out too. This is a bad day. 
A hungry wife is not a happy wife. Habakkuk says, verse 18, Yet I will exalt in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. For the Lord my God is my strength. Paul understood learning from a legacy of those believers, those those children of God that had come before him, that, that we are called as believers to rejoice not only in our current circumstances, but rejoice in whatever circumstances may come my way. And so Paul, in order to have a spirit, in order to have a life of joy, Paul said, I will rejoice in Christ. I I rejoice and I will rejoice. And so my question for us this morning is how will we respond? Excuse me. How will we respond when difficulties come our way? Will we protest? Or will we praise God? Will we pout? Because things aren't going our way? Or will we go to Him in prayer? If we're honest with ourselves, most of us pout. Most of us fuss and complain. We call up our friends. And we protest. We, we fuss at God because things aren't going our way. Paul said, I rejoice. And I will rejoice. Secondly, Philippians chapter 1, verse 19. He says, I know that things will turn out for my salvation through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus. Paul is relying not upon what he can do, not upon external circumstances, but he's relying upon Christ. Do you see that? He says, I know there is that, that, that acknowledgement and that security that Paul says, I know that things are going to turn out for my deliverance, for my salvation. Now, many of us will read this passage and we say, well, Paul knew he was going to get out of jail. Did he? Because I don't read it as that. I read Paul said that I know that, that my deliverance is coming. My deliverance may not be deliverance from prison. My deliverance may be deliverance from this mortal body and this, this earthly, earthly condemnation of sin and death and shame into an eternal glory with Christ. I know that my deliverance is coming, whether it is physical, temporary deliverance from a prison cell or eternal deliverance from this cell, this, this shell of a body that I'm in. But I know my deliverance is coming. And I am relying upon... I am relying upon Christ. I am relying upon the Spirit of God. Notice what he says in verse 19. I know that my salvation is coming, and it's coming through prayers and the provision of Christ. What's interesting is that Paul was relying upon the prayer of God's people for his sustaining power. I think in today's Western world, we trivialize prayer. How many of you have ever said this, myself included, have ever said this and, and not really meant it? Oh, we'll be praying for you. Has anybody ever heard that and left thinking, they ain't going to pray for me? I know I have. Has anybody ever said that just to end a conversation because you were tired of hearing about the other person complain? 
Oh, I'll be praying for you. What they're saying is, quit telling me about all your problems because I really don't care anyway. Because we, we in, this, in this 21st century Western world, we want to we find solutions to the problem. We don't want to trust. We don't want to rely upon God. We don't want to rely upon, upon the Spirit of the Lord. We want to find the problem to the solution. One of the most difficult things in my marriage has been learning to listen to my wife without solving my wife's problems. Whenever my wife worked up here at the school for many years, she would come home and I eventually had to fire her because it was, it was, it was not working well. And, and so she would, she would come home and she would say, oh my gosh, listen to what this parent, she called the office and this is what she said. And, and this teacher is doing this and this student this. And, and, and it, it, you know, we would sit at home and, and she would just you know, pepper me with all of the problems of her day. And as a man, as a man, I wanted to fix it. That's what we do. We fix things. My kids bring me broken stuff. And if I can fix it, I fix it. If not, it goes in the trash and we go get it. We go get a new one. That's what, that's what we do. And so we have this mindset in our Western world that we want to fix things. Not realizing that some things don't need to be fixed. Sometimes God needs Paul in a Roman prison. Sometimes God needs Joseph in Pharaoh's prison. Sometimes God needs Esther as a Persian wife. Sometimes God needs His people in the crucible. He needs His people in the fire so that He can use them for His providence and He can use them for His deliverance so He can use them for His greater glory. And we want to fix things. We want to solve things. We want to get Joseph rescued from Pharaoh's prison. We want to get Esther out of the king's concubine service. We want to get, we want to get Paul out of the Roman prison so that he can go back to doing what God had called him to do, not realizing that maybe God had, God had called him to a Pharaoh's prison or to a Roman prison or to the concubine service of a Persian king. Maybe God had called you to suffer for his glory. And maybe God's sustaining you by the prayer of his people. Paul was encouraged and sustained by the prayer of the people. Acts chapter 12. One of my favorite stories in all the book of Acts. Peter, Paul's contemporary, is thrown in prison. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to summarize this passage for you, and uh, Chris, you can do the best, uh, best job as you can following along in the, in the text. It's going to be Acts chapter 12, verse 4 through 16 if you want to follow along. But Peter gets thrown in prison. And as Peter gets thrown in prison, the church back at home hears that Peter's been thrown in prison. And so they all gather together and they, they, they begin to entreat the Lord, but they begin to pray for Peter day and night. And they're constantly, continually praying for Peter that, that, God would, that God would intercede and that God would, would deliver Peter from prison. And then they're, they're, they're praying and the church of God is fervently, effectively entreating on Peter's behalf. And then while Peter's in prison... An angel of the Lord shows up and takes the chains off of Peter and, and ushers Peter past 
Roman guard after Roman guard after Roman guard. And as Peter makes it outside the, the jail cell, the scripture says that, that, that Peter came to himself. So whether or not Peter was dreaming, whether he was asleep, whether he was unconscious, we don't know. But he comes to himself and he wakes up and he realizes, where am I? I was in a Roman prison cell and now I'm in the streets and let me, let me make my way to where I know the church is meeting so that I can let them know that I'm safe. And so, so Peter begins to, to, to go to where he knows the apostles are gathering and he, he knocks on the door and one of the servants that are there, she goes down to answer the door and she sees it's Peter and, and she, she's filled with joy and she runs upstairs, leaving Peter outside in the cold. She runs upstairs and says, Peter's outside. And they all look at her and they say, you're crazy. He's in prison. She goes, no, I'm telling you, he's outside. And so, so they run down and they open the door and, and, and Peter begins to tell them that, that God delivered me. God uses the prayer of his people to sustain them, to encourage them, to deliver them. Why do we think that God quit working? Why do we think that, that God all of a sudden is going to work differently than he did in the New Testament? Why do we think that God no longer intercedes and interacts amongst his people? This morning, I'm going to pick on you if that's okay, Miss Kathleen. This morning, uh, Mr. Uh, Mr. Richard came to me and said, uh, last, well, let me, let, let me back up. A couple weeks ago, uh, about a week ago, Miss Kathleen uh, got a re- uh, the results from her doctor and said that there's a spot on your lung uh, that, that we're going to need to biopsy. Miss Kathleen is recovering from... Uh, kidney cancer and uh, she's been through chemo after chemo and treatment after treatment and they got word that you know she's got a spot on her lung and they're gonna have to biopsy it so you know last week Mr. Richard called me he said they're gonna have to biopsy it and you know I said you know I, I prayed with him on the phone I said we're gonna continue to pray for you and you know I'll let Mr. Arthur know that that who uh, takes care of our prayer list we added her to our prayer list Begin praying for her. This morning, Mr. Richard comes up to me. He says, they're not going to biopsy. My immediate thought was, there's no point in biopsying it because it's spread. It's beyond this, and there's nothing they can do. I said, why? He said, they don't think it's cancer. <laughs> he, said, he said, you know, they, they reread the scan and they think it's just a swollen lymph node, an infected lymph node, and there, there's no need to biopsy. Because the effect, God's, the, the fervent prayer of the righteous affected much. It, it, God uses the prayer of his people to sustain us, to deliver us, to encourage us. Now, if they did have to biopsy it, it does not change God's faithfulness one bit. If it was cancer, it does not change God's faithfulness one bit. If Peter stays in that Roman prison, it does not change God's faithfulness one bit. What Paul teaches us through this passage is that we must rely, we must rejoice and we must rely upon Christ. We must depend upon Him. And if it is in His glory, if it is in His providence to allow us to endure the circumstances and the difficulty, we rejoice. And if he chooses by his great grace and his great sovereignty to deliver us, we rejoice. Naked I came from my mother's room, naked I shall return. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord.
And then Paul says this in Philippians chapter 1. He says, not only do we rejoice in Christ, not only do we rely upon Christ, but we represent Christ. Look at verse 20. Paul says, according to my earnest expectations and hope, I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ shall even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Do you realize that as you, if you call the name of Christ, if you claim to be a believer, you are a representative of Jesus. You are, by definition, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, an ambassador for Christ. You represent Christ. So as we suffer... As the world looks at us and they see our diagnosis of cancer or they see us going through loss, going through difficulty, going through hardship, as they see us endure difficulty, they are looking to us and say, how is Christ going to be represented in you, through you? The other day, my wife and my children and my mom and my brother, they all came out and we we spent a day... Uh, out at out in the country, uh, and they all everybody came to the uh, to some property that that we lease, and we we made campfires and we cooked hot dogs and hamburgers and we shot the guns and we rode the four wheelers. We do we did man stuff, and and as my mom and my wife were driving up, I was standing on the on the driveway, and my mom said, "She goes, man, when you're standing out there in that camouflage." Out in the middle of the country, she said, you look just like your dad. And I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. <laughs> but it reminded me of something that my grandmother had told me years and years ago. I had gone to visit my grandmother, and, and this was my dad's mom. And I was walking across a pond on several hundred yards away. And she told me, she said, when I saw you walking across that field, I said, as long as Preston Thompson lives, John Thompson will never die. And... That has stuck with me because the reality is, is that as my dad's son, I am a representative of him. And as I grow old, my children remind me every day, I'm old and I'm growing older every day. As I grow old, my children are a representative of me. As children of God, we represent him in everything that we do. We represent him when we go to work. We represent him when we go to the ball game and we lose our mind yelling and screaming at the referees. We represent him whenever we raise our children. We represent him in everything that we do. In this circumstance, I want us to understand the context. Prison was shameful, much like it is today. If you get word that somebody's in jail... The immediate response is not, wow, what an exemplary thing for so-and-so now that they have been arrested and, and tried and are convicted. So glad for them that they're in prison. That's never the response. It was, it's shameful. Immediately if someone's in prison, the thought is, well, they don't put innocent people in jail. They must have done something. 
If they've gotten enough, if, 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 if they had enough to arrest him and they had enough to try him and they had enough to convict him, they must have done something. And such was the case in Paul's life too. There was, it was, there was a, a, a sense of shame that would have been, that would, that Paul would have assumed and Paul would have worn being in prison. And this is not his first time in jail. But I want us to notice what Paul says. He says, according to my earnest expectations and hope, I shall not be put to shame in anything, but with all boldness, Christ shall even now always be exalted in my body. He says, I am going to represent Christ in my body. I'm going to represent Christ in the way that I live. And though my reputation may suffer temporarily, I know that if Christ is in me, Christ will be reflected through me and I will be an ambassador for Christ. I will represent Christ. How? He says this last verse in verse 21. He says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. As Paul was in prison, he understood that this was an opportunity for him to represent Christ. How? He says, for me to live is Christ and for me to die is gain. In the Greek, verse 21 is a very interesting verse. It has no verbs. There's no verbs. It has two infinitives. It has two infinitives. To live and to die. It has a prepositional phrase, for me... And it has two direct objects. Christ, gain. So what Paul says, and, and, and in the English we add verbs so it can make sense, so we can read it. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to translate it verbatim and I want you to see if you get the emphasis. Paul says, I have been called to represent Christ. There's no shame. I am exalting Christ in my body. For me, to live, Christ. To die, gain. There's an emphasis. There's a, there's a punch that Paul puts there. without he, he purposely omits the verb. He says, for me, to live, Christ. To die, gain. What he's saying is, I'm going to represent Christ. How? I'm not living for myself. I'm living for Jesus. And so, how do we represent Christ? I want us to answer this question. For me, living is blank. My oldest played baseball and Eight, slept, eight, slept, drank baseball for the last seven, eight years. And we would go to baseball games and baseball tournaments, and you'd see these, you know, you see these people wearing shirts that says baseball is life. Maybe you've seen other, whatever it is, football is life, you know, soccer is life, softball is life. Uh, and I would talk to mom and dad, these kids whose parents you know, they travel, they're on these travel baseball teams. I talked to a 14-year-old dad, the dad of a 14-year-old. <laughs> I talked to the dad of a 14-year-old whose son, at 14 years old, had played in over 90 baseball games as a 14-year-old. Just put it in perspective, that's more baseball games than the LSU baseball team plays. 
14 years old. This is like June, May, we're talking. This kid's played in over 90 baseball games. Friday, Saturday, Sunday, they're at the baseball field. Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, they're at the baseball field. The kid, kid gets like one or two days off a week. Baseball's life for many of these people. It's not, and, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm picking on travel baseball. There's, there's, there's a whole number. There are people who do competition cheer that, that they go all over the place. There's gymnastics. There's dance. Pick your poison. It doesn't matter. I'm picking on baseball. I'm picking on sports, but it, 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 it can be something completely different. It can be, it can be music. It can be, it can be LSU. There are people who, who have not missed this home game in 30 years. And for them, LSU is life. Now, I want you to see what Paul says. For me to live Christ. To die, gain. So whatever you put in that blank, for me, living is blank. Living is family. Living is food. Living is money. Living is success. Living is beauty. Living is entertainment. Living is pleasure. You have to put the antithesis on the other side. For me, living is money. For me, death is broke. For me, living is pleasure. For me, death will be the absence of pleasure. For me, living is power. Death would be the absence of power. For me, living is family. Death would be no family. Living is relationship. Death would be loneliness. When we live for Christ, death has no sting. For me, living is Christ. And to die is gain. That's the only win-win. Everything else, whatever we live for, whatever we live for, the antithesis of it brings us death, despair, despondency. But, When we live for Christ, death has no sting. Death has no bite. You're sitting here this morning and you're trying to fill in the blank. Living is blank. Let me tell you an easy way to fill in that blank. Ask your kids. Ask your spouse. Look at your checkbook. Look at where you spend your time. That's what living is for you. What's interesting, Paul comes to the conclusion, for me to live is Christ, for me to die is gain. And the ancient world realized, you can't kill a dead man. How in the world did the apostles, 12 uneducated fishermen, And Paul have the influence in the ancient world in such a way that they did. Because they all lived for Jesus. And death for them was gain. Throw them in prison, 
They share the gospel with all the prisoners. Beat them, they praise God through their beatings. Exile them, they praise God that they're able to suffer as Christ suffered. They rely upon the Spirit of God and the prayers of His people. They represent Christ in all circumstances, in everything that they do. They rejoice, they rely, they represent Christ. For them to live is Christ and for them to die is gain. And you can't kill a dead man. You threaten him with death, praise God, I get to go be with Jesus. Well, then we're not going to kill you. Praise God, I get to share Jesus. No, we're not going to allow you to share Jesus. We're going we're to torture you. Praise God, I get to suffer for Jesus. You see the problem? The mindset, the perspective is everything. So I want to challenge you this evening, or this morning rather. What are you living for? For me, answer this question. For me, to live Christ. To die, gain. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you, you died that we might have life. That we could say with Paul, for me to live is Christ and for me to die is gain. Lord, may we be strengthened. May we be encouraged this morning through our sufferings, through our difficulties, through our hardships. May we see your goodness, your grace demonstrated through the sustaining power of your spirit as your people pray. There are some here this morning who need to be encouraged by the prayer of your people. Maybe you've been kicked in the teeth by life. Maybe you've been suffering hardships, difficulty. You've been grieving. You've been mourning. And you need God's sustaining presence and God's sustaining power. His word tells us that he gives us that through the prayer of his people. If that's you this morning, I want to invite you to come to this altar. Grab someone with you. Say, preacher, I need to be sustained. I need to be upheld. I need to be lifted up by the prayer of your people. If that's you this morning, as we sing this hymn of invitation, you come. Just rest in God's abiding presence. Maybe this morning you spent the last weeks, months pouting over your suffering, over your circumstances. And God is reminding you this morning that you need to rejoice. You need to rejoice in your present circumstance and rejoice for what God will do in the future, regardless of what it may be. Maybe you've not been representing Christ as you should. Maybe the reason you haven't been representing Christ as you should is because you don't know Jesus. Oh, you've been a member of church, you've gotten baptized jump through all the hoops but you've never really trusted the saving work of Christ the gospel says that our salvation is 
not found in what we do, but in everything that Christ has done. If that's you this morning, I'll invite you to come. Quit trying to be good enough. Quit trying to be holy enough to satisfy God and trust in Jesus. Maybe God's calling you to be a part of what He's doing right here at Redeemer. Whatever the Spirit of God is speaking to your heart this morning, may you be obedient. God, we ask you that your Holy Spirit would move amongst us this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray.